we continue a short series of sermons on perspectives in prayer. Today's topic is one that is very necessary but not at all popular, and that's praying in the middle of suffering and difficulties. Now, all of us experience suffering difficulties because it is a part of living in this broken, fallen world. They come in many different shapes and sizes from small, daily irritations. Yesterday, I was putting away a little box of Legos, and my hand slipped and my thumb hit the, the latch, and the box fell on the floor, and they scattered all over the place. So I spent the next five minutes trying to find them and gather them and get them all back in the box. We all have different kinds of little irritations like that. But these suffering and difficulties go from there all the way to life-changing events where we feel like the whole, our breath has just been knocked out of us altogether. Well, the situation we're in now with COVID-19 has restricted all of us and has changed our routines. I was reading, it was either this week or last week, that somebody was saying that for some of us what has happened is us being, having to slow down has actually kind of uh, revealed to us some parts of us that were kind of hidden by the busyness that uh, our lives had been before uh, COVID-19. Now, even without the pandemic, suffering and difficulties play a daily part of our lives, and we naturally want to avoid them. Now, because all of this is true, it is good that the Bible speaks a lot about suffering and difficulties. So to get started, let's read our verses for today. Please follow along as I read 2 Corinthians 1, verses 3 and 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Now first notice what the verses do not say. They do not say that only bad people will experience suffering. They don't say that God will prevent all suffering. This is what we see that the verses tell us or are implied. First, that we will have affliction, difficulties, and suffering, all of us in some form or another. He says in verse 4, God comforts us in all our affliction. So we're going to have these problems. Second, what I just read, God will comfort Christians. Paul is writing this to, to Christians in the church at Corinth. And he goes on to say that God is the God of all comfort. So if we're looking for comfort, that's ultimately where it's going to come from. But then thirdly, we see that you and I will be able to comfort others with the comfort that, that God gives us. Now, I know some people try to deal with their difficulties and pain and suffering by being philosophical and abstract. And that doesn't work very well, especially when the suffering touches you personally. And when you look at God, God does not stay abstract. He does not stay distant. He is right in the middle of the mess with us. Now, some listening to this today are going to say, well, you know what? <clears throat> at least right now, <clears throat> I'm not in, in the middle of any significant problems, difficulties, or suffering. Well, these truths are good ones to tuck away because there will be a time both with the little daily irritations and the larger problems where we need to remember these truths. Now, I've got a number of uh, different scriptures today and thoughts that I want to share with you, and I've organized them under 
these three headings, if you've got your service supplement looking at the sermon outline, you'll see these. First, we're going to talk about sources of suffering for just a minute. We're going to talk about God's purposes for suffering a little longer. We're going to talk about our hope in our suffering a little bit more. And then we're going to talk a good bit about applying this to our situation. So first, sources of suffering. Suffering comes to us first because of our own sin, the sin of other people, and then the brokenness of the world. When I talk about sin, I'm talking about the way that you and I disobey God and rebel against God and His rule. We see in Genesis 3 both the first rebellion and we see the beginning of suffering. But every one of us contribute to brokenness and suffering with our own disobedience and rebellion against God's law. And so we sin against others, others sin against us. Let's talk about that for a second. Sometimes it's unintentional. I didn't mean to do anything to cause you some problems and difficulties, but it just happened. And sometimes I do mean, actually, to cause you problems and to hurt you. Sometimes uh, the result is just a little irritation, and sometimes it's a very big hurt. Sometimes we're very obvious in what we do, and then sometimes what we're doing is actually socially acceptable. It's still causing problems. It's still hurting somebody, but it's socially acceptable. So that's people with people. But then there's the brokenness of the world, and that's things that are kind of outside of all that, like storms and hurricanes and tornadoes and floods, sickness and death and other things like that. In Romans 8, 23, Paul is talking about this whole situation with the suffering, and he says this, not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption, for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So here he's saying, Every one of us as people knows what it is to, to go through suffering and difficulties, and we groan under it. He's writing to Christians, and he's saying, we're, we're hoping, looking forward to the adoption. We're already adopted, if you're a Christian, as God's child, but we're not home yet. And then the redemption, he's talking about the full restoration. God has begun restoring through Jesus. We're in this already but not yet time where we can see some restoring going on, but it's not fully here yet. Not everything that's broken has been restored yet, but it's coming. But if you notice, the verse says it's not just us as people. The creation itself is groaning under what was put on it by Adam and Eve's sin and ours. Another source of suffering that I want to mention is the devil. And I have to say in today's culture, that he's real. He's not this little red guy, you know, a guy wearing a red jumpsuit with a little pitchfork and a pointy tail. Okay? That's not him. He's real, and he hates God. And because God made people in his image, he hates us. And I believe that the, the devil especially likes it when we hurt each other. And so he encourages us to do that. In 1 Peter 5, verse 9, we read this. Resist him. That is talking about the devil. Resist the devil, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. So first we see suffering is common, but second we see this 
talk about the devil, and that, that you and I should resist him. Again, why? In the verse before this, he's called a roaring lion trying to devour. And as I said, one of the best ways he loves for us to devour is for us to hurt each other. So we should resist him. Now, our natural response, as I mentioned, to suffering is to avoid it, to not have to deal with it. Our response is not just personal, but it's also shaped by our culture or by the culture that we live in. And so I've done a little bit of reading on this, and sociologists, historians, pastors, and others have looked at current cultures and past cultures and have realized that they have some, there's a, uh, a set of common approaches to, to pain and suffering that, that every uh, culture has. It has one of these. So the first one I want to mention is what I, you could call fate or destiny. And these are not always taught overtly. A lot of times they're taught in stories and in other ways, but the message becomes very clear. And so in the cultures that have this, uh, this fate approach or destiny approach, they say this, look, suffering is just a part of life. It's unavoidable. But the noble person, the good person, is going to face their suffering well. Now, the message doesn't say how it's going to turn out. We'd like to know how it's going to turn out. Maybe the person overcomes the difficulty. Maybe they're overcome by it. But the culture says, you're a good person, a good man or woman, if you face it well. Another approach is called dualism. There's good in the world and there's evil in the world. And they battle with each other. And kind of implied in this is, well, you know, if, you're, if you decided to go on the evil side, you should expect suffering. But it's not just going to be the evil people. Because of this battle, um, sometimes people get caught in the middle and they get hurt too. But that's why, because there is this battle. Then there's a, another approach called moralism. And I think the best example of that is Job's friends when they come to, quote, and I have to put this in quotes, comfort Job. And I don't know if this saying was there before, but it certainly applied at that point. And Job could have said it with friends like you who needs enemies. Because what was their message? Job, bad things happen to bad people. Good things happen to good people. Look at your life, Job. You have lost your wealth. You have lost your family. And you have lost your health. You, have must, you must have done something really, really bad and yeah, you hit it well, but now it's coming out because bad things happen to bad people and good things happen to good people. You don't want bad things to happen, you do good things. The last one I want to mention, and it's interesting how there is a, a good degree of agreement on this one, and that is that modern Western culture is particularly weak in helping people to deal with suffering because it focuses so much on pleasure and happiness. It also has embraced, this modern Western culture has embraced evolution, and when you look at what evolution says, it says that suffering is random and meaningless. And that's one thing we don't like. We might see that there's some randomness to it, but we don't like the idea that suffering is meaningless. Point number two in the outline, God's purposes in our suffering. We begin with this. God is working spiritual change in us, spiritual growth and spiritual maturity in us through suffering. Romans 5, verses 3 to 5. More than that, we re this sound a little strange. 
More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So notice what this verse, these verses do. They put suffering and God's love side by side. They're not mutually exclusive at all. Now, often we experience God's care as His provision and as His relief. But sometimes God's goodness comes to us in the form of suffering and difficulties because those are the ways that God can give us things that we would not get otherwise. Now, as you look at these verses, these verses presume first that you and I are going to look at life from an eternal perspective. I was just reading this week in, in one of my devotionals about eternity amnesia. It is so easy for us to forget that God made us to live for eternity and he made us to live for eternity with him. And when we forget all that, we just focus right into the what's here with me right now and right in front of me. And if you notice this verse, that's why it sounds strange that he says, we rejoice in our sufferings. Okay, some people look at that and say, oh, Paul is a sadist. Okay, he just enjoys pain. No, he doesn't. He sees that there's something that God is doing in it and through it. And you also see in these verses this idea that, that of accepting the suffering and not running away from it. Now, when I talk about accepting it, I'm not talking about being fatalistic and saying, oh, well, whatever it is, I just can't do anything about it. No, I'm not talking about that. We should try to seek relief, but if it doesn't come, then we realize, okay, this is here, so I'm not going to keep doing what our modern culture says, which is do whatever is necessary to avoid suffering. If you have a relationship that has gone sour, walk out of it. If you've had some other situation, bail. Find a way to get your peace and your happiness again, whatever it takes. You don't see that in these verses. If, it, if the suffering is here and you can't move away from it, okay, say, okay, God, this is, you're with me here, and we're going to walk through this. We're going to see how that works out in just a minute. But just one little, to me, is a little oddity. I think our culture basically says whatever it takes to, to avoid the suffering, do it. But there's one case where it's accepted and even expected, and that's in athletic training. If a, if a person is a serious athlete, they are going to exercise. They're going to push their bodies. They're going to you know, invest all this time. They're going to guard how they sleep and how they eat and what their exercise is and everything else. And that all that work is going to result in some suffering and, and some pain for them. Why are they doing it? Because they want to compete at a higher level. They want to do better than they're doing right now. And we say, go for it. That's a good thing. Yet for me personally, if I'm not the athlete, oh no, not going to go there. Another purpose. God tells us in Romans 8 that he's making us more like Jesus. And one of the things that he does is he does use at times suffering as part of that process. But in that chapter also, God tells us there is nothing that will ever separate us from him or from his love. Another purpose. God calls us at times to walk into suffering the way that Jesus did for us. He wants us to walk into suffering for others. 
In Colossians 1, 24, Paul says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. Now on the face of it, you might look at that and say, Oh, Paul is saying that Jesus is deficient. There's just something missing. Now another way to read this verse that kind of removes that idea is this. Christians are called to follow Jesus' pattern of self-giving. Jesus gave himself for us. He calls us to follow that same pattern that we give ourselves for others. And so because we love other people, there are times we voluntarily step into suffering or difficulties with these people that we love or for them. And every parent knows what I'm talking about because we do it. Parents do this. God also calls us to hold him higher in our lives than anything else, even if it results in suffering. In 2 Thessalonians 1, verse 5, Paul says, This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. In the New Testament, we have two letters that Paul wrote to the church at Thessalonica. In the book of Acts, it's really short, but you get just a little snippet of how long Paul was there. And the picture seems to be that he was there at most maybe five, four, five, six weeks max. And because what happened was after he was there a few weeks, the, the, the resistance of Jews who did not agree with his message and other people began to grow and build to the point that he had to leave. So he and his team leaves. He does send one of his team, at least one of his team, back later to teach and encourage and to help. But those people, those Jews and Gentiles, non-Jewish people in Thessalonica that became Christians, they stayed, along with all the people who had rejected Paul's message. And so those people that rejected it are, are giving, making life hard for these new Christians. But what have they done? They have chosen in response to God's love for them, to put God first in their life, even if it means suffering. Final purpose from our verses that we read today. Another purpose for our suffering is so that we can, can comfort others. Just as Bruce was talking about, we not can, only, can not only empathize with them, we can say, this is not just an idea I've read in the Bible. I have personally experienced God's comfort in the small things and the big things, and you can too. Number three, our hope in suffering. Jesus, this is the first one I want to give you, God, who is God the Son, not only knows what it is to suffer, He suffered more than any of us ever will. And He suffered for us. In Hebrews 2, verse 10, we read, it is, For it was fitting that he, referring to Jesus, for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Look at, look, look at what's going on here. Jesus is the one who created the world. It's through Jesus' work that people, men and women, boys and girls, become Christians or brought into God's family and what did he do? He suffered. Then Hebrews 2, verse 18. 
again, talking about Jesus, for he, because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. There's another place in, in Hebrews where it says that Jesus is our high priest and he's a sympathetic high priest because he knows what it is to, to have the difficulties, to be tired, to, be, uh, to, to have things happen, to have friends die, all of these kinds of things. He knows what that's like. But when I said that Jesus suffered more than any of us ever will, on the cross, Jesus took the punishment from God that all of the sins and the selfishness and the lust and the evil of all the people that Jesus chose to love, including you and me, he took it on himself. And he took all that punishment. And he completely satisfied God's justice in doing that. We talked at Easter that for the first time from eternity past, Jesus' personal close relationship with God the Father was broken because Jesus took our sin on himself. Which means that our disobedience and our selfishness is, is not a small thing. It's been called and is cosmic treason. Another hope that we have, that God is in control. But remember this, there are times where God, where God will confuse us because his ways are not our ways and his thoughts are not our thoughts. But it's good that he's in control because he's not only in control, but he is good and kind and merciful. Then he gives us a promise in 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. If you haven't underlined that in your Bible yet, I would encourage you to do that. God is faithful. And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. I would encourage you to do this. Anytime you read that verse and you see the word escape, think Psalm 23. Because escape does not mean what you think it means in this verse. We think, oh, I'm going to punch out. I'm going to bail. God's going to remove me from the situation. Maybe, but not that often. More often it's going to be what you see in Psalm 23, where, where David says, God is my shepherd, and sometimes my shepherd leads me through the valley of the shadow of death. He leads me through it. And that's the idea of escape, is that God has a way for us to go through the situation and to walk out on the other side. And we can walk out on the other side because God is with us. And that's what you see in Psalm 23. The shepherd walks us through the valley of the shadow of death. And then this last hope from Revelation 21, 4 and 5, talking again about eternity. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There's comfort. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning that is grieving or crying nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. God made a promise, and he said, I've committed myself. I'm going to make all things new. Everything that's broken is going to be restored. All the people that live with God in heaven for eternity there won't be any grieving. There won't be any death, any pain, any suffering, any crying, any hunger, any of that anymore. It will all be gone. That helps us to have that 
eternal perspective. Now, application. Now, I've got several different ideas here in the application, so follow along with me. In James 5.13, we're asked, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. So the question, what do we pray and how do we pray, especially in the middle of suffering and difficulty, where this first set of points that I have apply all the time, but they're particularly good to remember when we are in the middle of difficulties. First, real prayer is the real us talking to the real God. You learn about the real God by reading the Bible. We become, we're real with God when we're honest with Him when we pray. Now, I grew up in the church and I grew up kind of picking up this idea that when I pray to God, I have to be nice. I kind of have to spiritually, whether I'm not wearing my Sunday best, put on my spiritual Sunday best when I talk to God and I have to be nice and polite and I can't complain and I can't ask hard questions. I just have to, to just kind of accept everything. Now, it's not that I was taught that directly. That's just what I picked up. God wants us to be honest with him. And so if at the moment you don't like where your life is, it's okay to tell God, be respectful. There was a time for the better part of a year as an adult where every day that I came home from work, if the weather was nice, I took a walk. And one of the things that I prayed as I walked was, God, I do not like my life. But I also recognized, and I learned that from people in, here in the harvester, but I also recognized that I was in the place I was because of my own sinfulness and selfishness. And so I recognized that and said, okay, God, help me to be faithful and to trust you that you've got a plan for this. But I was being honest. This God, I don't like this. Also, if you're confused, you can say so. God, I really i am not following where you're going here. Okay, I don't, I don't know. And too often, we're in T-shirt mode. Been there, done that. Learn the lesson. Don't need to get it again. Oh, that is not so true. Or so not true? So not true. Okay? We need the lessons again and again. Now, is it wrong for us to ask God to take away suffering for ourselves and others? Not at all. We can ask for relief. We can ask for particular answers to prayer. But we step over the line when we go from asking to demanding. Say, God, you're failing here. We've gone too far. Now, pulling from last week, remember the prayer that never fails that Father Tim had. God, your will be done. Now, I think some people, including some Christians, would look at that and say, well, if I'm praying that, I've just gave, given up. Okay, God, whatever. It's yours. No, it's not giving up. It's resting and trusting. We can ask not only for relief, but for comfort. We can ask for a sense of God's presence. Say, okay, God, right now I feel like uh, you've got me in this valley of the shadow of death, and I, I know in my head you're here, but would you help me to, to, to know, to feel that you are here with me? Would you help me to trust you and to depend upon you because, God, I know at times my faith is weak, my faith in you. You see, one of our temptations is to let our circumstances and our desires shape our view of God. And so when we do that, all right, God, uh, you know, where are you? You're not, you're not keeping your end of things here. Life is supposed to be better than it is. At that point, 
I'm letting my circumstances and desires shape my view of God instead of letting God's truth shape my view of God and my circumstance, which is why we're going through this sermon and why we can look at Scripture's God's truth about this. A few other thoughts as we finish up. As we're being honest, one of the words that, uh, one of the things that you see in the Bible, especially in the Psalms, where the writers are being honest, are called laments. A lament, L-A-M-E-N-T. And it's something you do, especially when you're in the middle or, or, or towards the end of some suffering and difficulties. You don't know what it is. If you want to learn more about it, Paul Miller has a book called A Praying Life in his second edition, not the first one. Second edition includes two chapters on a lament. And basically a, a lament is this. Sometimes there is a gap between what we desire and reality. Now, when there is no gap, we're very happy because what we're wanting, we're getting. Sometimes there is a gap, and the bigger the gap, the more painful it can be. And the lament addresses that gap between what we desire to happen and where we are. And the Bible, as I said, is full of laments. In fact, we have, you see them in the Psalms, but we have a book of the Bible. You ever wondered why the book of Lamentations is called Lamentations? It's because it's a lament by the prophet Jeremiah as he looks at the city of Jerusalem after it's been destroyed by the Babylonians according to God's plan because of their own disobedience. And when you look at a lament, it might sound like complaining, but in a lament you get questions, hard questions, you get honest talk, but if you look closely you'll see that it's connected to faith in God. And that's the difference between a complaint. A complaint is focused on me. A lament you see your situation, but there is still a focus on God in there. Already, already talked about having an eternal perspective on life, that the pres which means the present is not my only lens on life. As we look and as we experience suffering, that does not mean that, God, that, that this is messing up God's plan. He has to move from plan A to B and sometimes to plan C and D. No, he's always on plan A. And our suffering doesn't mean that God has failed. Connecting another way, this week to last week, sometimes God's plans for us include suffering because, remember the clenched fist? We're going after the kingdom of one. And he wants us to loosen our grip on that kingdom. Or he wants us to loosen our grip on the things of this world. Because, as we've just seen, there is a better world coming for Christians. And it's certain. Let me finish this way. Left to ourselves, you and I want life to be easy, predictable, and comfortable. That's not a bad thing, but it is a bad thing if it's the only thing we, we desire. Well, in, a, in His goodness, God does not leave us to ourselves. God uses all of the good gifts that He gives us, and He tells us that every good gift we have is from Him. He uses all of those good gifts plus suffering to accomplish his work in us. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are good. That uh, we don't, well, we, we admit, we do not understand your plan, uh, which includes brokenness and suffering for now. But you didn't step away from it, you stepped into it. And you are the only one who gives us hope. Lord, our hope is in you. Remind us 
of that. Lord, help us to see that you have given us everything that we need for life and godliness, both in the good times and the hard. It's in your word. You give it to us by your spirit. You remind us through other people. We thank you for all of that. Lord, help us to focus on you in every day, every day to see the good that you give us. Help us to, to focus and remember these truths, your word, especially when we do encounter those times of difficulty. Pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.